Welcome to Musically Challenged, your weekly helping of random music conversations based on whatever topic the guys choose. Their goal is to entertain and inform you on a variety of themes. This podcast is an expression of their lifelong love and commitment to music. Simply stated, music is life. This show may include adult themes and language. Once again, welcome to Musically Challenged. Here are your hosts, Chad and Lou. Is all you. Welcome to episode 61 of Musically Challenged, your weekly helping of random music conversations based on pretty much whatever topic we want. I'm your host, Lou Schwalbach, and along with me, as always, is Chad Knight. Konnichiwa. This week, we'll be going back to the mailbag and letting a guest listener be part of the show. Like before, we're going to be going to an outside playlist given to us by a listener and giving our well-educated and, generally speaking, non-biased opinions on the songs, good or bad. As a reminder, we've chosen not to accept any stipulations such as don't hate on the band because I like them or don't be mean. We won't be pulling punches regardless of whoever our guest chooser is, so there's no favoritism displayed, just our pure, unadulterated opinions. Potential submitters, don't say you weren't warned. You know, I say unadulterated. I think that's the most adult part of us. (laughs) Just saying. This week's playlist was brought to us by one of Chad's co-workers, Jeremy A. He sent us a list of random songs that come off of a playlist that he listens to. They're a little across the board, which is great, and he had self-admittedly stated he had a hard time pairing it down to 14. Should be interesting. Like always, our guest listener playlist begs us to ponder the questions. Will we discover some new artists that we have to start listening to, or is it just going to be some junk we could live without? Will we find our lives enriched and bettered for listening, or are we going to feel cheated that we got screwed out of that precious time and want our my, our time back? It all depends on which song we're talking about. Truth. Guess you're just going to have to listen to find out. So without further ado, let's get started. So let's get started with, hey man, what's up? Not much, man. Just kind of doing the thing, you know what I mean? Yep, yep. I thought it was kind of neat that uh, Jeremy, I was just talking to him one day, and he knows I do podcasts and stuff, and we were talking about type of podcast I do, because it's, I mean, I do this one, and I do a couple other ones. He's like, uh, we're talking, and I'm talking to him, he's like, that sounds really neat. I'm like, hey, you want to give us a list? And he's like, yeah, I think I can do that. And like, four hours later, we had a list in the email. It was kind of cool. And it was stuff that was easily able to find. Yeah, generally yeah. Generally speaking. There was one that you had a problem with, but we asked him, and we he got had it. it. Right, exactly. We had it right away, almost. So, what do you say? We get liquored up? I think that sounds like a good idea. Alright, so this year, we're going to do another... This uh, year? Uh, this year, this week, we're going to do another cider-ish type, fruity-flavored one. Mm-hmm. This is Crispin Pacific Pear. It's a hard cider that is orchard to bottle, so yay, good. Made from fresh-pressed American pears. And what do we got here? Four and a half percent. All right, filtered, cold for brilliant clarity. This, I mean, this is seriously, this is like super duper clear. Yeah, it's it's almost. I almost think like it smells very much like pear. But it's almost so clear that I'm like I'm not gonna get much of a flavor out of it. That's what I'm. That's what I worry about. Well, we'll have to see. You wanna give it a run? Yeah, let's do it. That's good. It, I was kind of founded in my fear. It, it's it's good from the flavor you get, but it's not a very strong flavor. It's not a bad flavor. It's a great flavor. But it's solid pear though. It's nothing else. Yeah, yeah. You can't. I can't taste the alcohol at all. That's dangerous. This could be on a hot summer day. Not some crappy day in March, but on a hot summer day, sitting out by a fire or something. <laughs> Who are you lying to? We'll drink on any day. Well, yes, but I'm just saying this would be great on like a hot summer night. You're sitting around a, bo- around a little pit fire or something. Ice cold. Yeah, and stagger yeah. stagger away. 
Yeah, just sleep there. There you go. <laughs> so what do you think? I'm going to go with a bar. I'm going to go an up. Okay. So we've got that. So now it comes to the time that I know that you are fearing, but I get my... I'm not, joy. though, because last week I got back to 500. You did, and... And I'm hoping to... to uh, go above the hump? Yeah, I'm hoping to get over the hump here. All right. So what 1992 song won MTV Video Music Awards for Video of the Year, Best Group Video, Best Metal Slash Hard Rock Video, and Best Director in the Year 1993? Me to read it again? Yes, please. What 1992 song won MTV Video Music Awards for Video of the Year, Best Group Video, Best Metal Slash Hard Rock Video, and Best Director in 1993? Wow. Any hints? I gave you a hint on the last episode, actually. Don't overthink it. And keep in mind, too, I always put, I try to put your trivia question based on what we're talking about. Okay. I guess that's I'm gonna as, I'm gonna have to think about it. That's I, as much of a hint as I'm gonna give you, and you're right. gonna smack yourself for overthinking once you're done. Probably. <laughs> so while Chad is pondering and the smoke is pouring out of the ears, we're gonna go ahead and give you a slight reminder of our rating system. So we're not gonna do one to ten because that's too easy. We're gonna do a zero to ten, even though we've never had a zero, which is absolute shit. Or a ten. Or a ten, which is the unicorn. We still have them just in case. Yep. Kind of like having insurance. You never want to have to use it, but if you do, you're glad it's there. So we've got 1 to 3, which is a hard pass. Eh, don't care for it. Not a fan. Switch the radio station. Yuck. 4 to 6 is pretty much where we're going to find everything else. It's not great. It's not terrible. We're not going to change the station, but we're not going to look for it. 7 to 9 is pretty good Pretty good to great. Pretty damn good. We might look for more of it, and these are pretty decent. They're pretty damn good. Pretty damn good. Now I'm thinking of the guy from uh, from Eurotrip. Oh, yes. The soccer hooligans. That's pretty damn good. Pretty damn good! So why don't we go ahead and have you get started on this one. Alright, I'm going to kick off with Long Distance Runaround by Yes. Now, I'm going to say yes a lot when I'm talking here, but it's not like... Uh, a confirmation? Not, yeah, it's just the name of the band. So maybe we use a different word for confirmation? How about confirmation? In agreed. Agreed. Indeed, good <laughs> sir. In indeed. So Yes are an English progressive rock band... Formed in London in 1968 by singer John Anderson, bassist Chris Squire, guitarist Peter Banks, keyboardist Tony Kay, and drummer Bill Bruford. You hear that, Al? We're doing a progressive band. Thank you. That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> this band have undergone numerous formations throughout their history. Nineteen musicians have been full-time members. Jesus. Well, now, last week we talked about a couple bands where they had no None. turnover. You know, and there's a couple artists. There's one I can think of off the top of my head. It's a band called Bang Camaro. Okay. That their previ their current and previous is probably about maybe 150 people. Because they bring on, like, at one time, there's like 30 people in the band. Yeah, it sounds like Green Jelly or Green Jello. Kind of. They kind of have, like, this swinging... I think there's one guy that's been there since the beginning, and mm -hmm. that's it. I mean... But anyway, since June 2015, it has consisted of guitarist Steve Howe, drummer Alan White, guitarist Jeff Downs... And you know he's British because he doesn't know how to spell Jeff. Oh, is it G-E-O-F-F? Yeah. <laughs> Singer John Davidson and bassist Billy Sherwood, with no remaining founding members. Now, that's another odd one where the name carries over, but none of the members do. Yeah, that is kind of odd. You, you said John Davidson. It made me think of the dude that hosted Hollywood Squares back in the day. <laughs> Was that his name? Yeah. Okay. John, he also did little uh, videos of, like, you can own this house and this house if you send $2,500 to this investment thing or whatever. Oh, okay. So, yes, have explored several musical styles over the years and are most notably regarded as progressive rock pioneers. 
Yes began in 1968 performing original songs and rearranged covers of rock, pop, blues, and jazz songs, as evident on their first two albums. A change of direction in 1970 led to a series of successful progressive rock albums until their disbanding in 1981. Their most successful being the Yes album, 1971, Fragile, 1971, and Close to the Edge, 1972. Yes toured as a major rock act that earned the band a reputation for their elaborate stage sets, light displays, and album covers uh, designed by Roger Dean. The success of Runabout, the single from Fragile, cemented their popularity across the decade and beyond. In 1983, Yes reformed with a new lineup that included Trevor Rabin, and a more commercial and pop-orientated musical direction. The result was 90125 in 1983, their highest-selling album, which contained the U.S. number one single, Owner of a Lonely Heart. So in 2009, Yes resumed touring and continued to release albums. Their most recent is Heaven and Earth on 2014. Yes are one of the most successful, influential, and longest-lasting progressive rock bands. They have sold 13.5 million RIAA certified albums in the U.S. They were ranked number 94 on VH1's 100 Greatest Artists of Hard Rock. And in April 2017, Yes were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which chose to specifically bestow the honor upon current and former members Anderson Squire, Bruford K. Howe, Rick Wakeman, White, and Rabin. Let's do the Long Distance Runaround. Long Distance Long Distance Runaround is a song by Yes, who first recorded it for their 1971 album Fragile. Written by lead singer John Anderson, the song was released as a B-side to Roundabout, but became a surprise hit in its own right as a staple of album-orientated rock radio. The song's 3 minute and 30 second running time was uncharacteristically brief for a group known for expansive songs, often longer than 10 minutes. Yes co-founder John Anderson wrote the lyrics to the song while allegedly remembering his encounter with religious hypocrisy and competition he experienced in attending church regularly as a youth in northern England. Long time slash waiting to feel the sound was a sentiment toward wanting to see a real, compassionate, non-threatening example of godliness. I think the song is slow, but I really did kind of like the feel of it all. Not my favorite Yes song. There's a lot more of those but the only bad thing i really have to say about it is that it just plods along i gave it a five all right now first of all i have to say that they were on vh1's hard rock list i don't think they belong on a hard rock list i would agree a rock and roll list yes not hard rock but that's just me i like yes um this was a song the problem the problem i just uh, the problem with this is that they don't make lists of progressive rock bands because nobody cares well maybe one person well, sorry, Al. <laughs> now, I like Yes, and this was a song that I was pretty sure I knew, but I didn't recognize the name. It's a decent song. I really like the bass work on it. It sounds almost beach and surfy to a degree. At points, yeah. It's not one of Yes's favorite, or one of Yes's best albums, but it's a decent effort. I gave it a six. Okay. So we're in the same ballpark. All right, so what are you kicking off with? 
We're going to unfortunately kick off with one of my favorite ones of all of them, and that's going to be Everlong by the Foo Fighters. Okay. Now, Foo Fighters is an American rock band that formed in 1994. Once Nirvana dissolved due to Kurt Cobain offing himself, the Foos were founded by Dave Grohl, the former Nirvana bummer, <laughs> drummer. He is not a bummer. No, no, he's supposed to be actually a pretty cool guy, um, a, as a one-man project. The name came from a World War II term, allied pilots that saw UFOs or other weird shit would identify them collectively as Foo Fighters. There's your history lesson for today. Yay, history. So apparently during the Nirvana time, he would take his guitar with him on tour and write songs, but held him back from the band. He stated that he was intimidated by Kurt Cobain's songs and felt he'd best keep them to himself. Kind of glad he did, because I don't think some of Foo Fighters' songs would have worked as Nirvana. No, I don't think so. After the official demise, Grohl kept on the DL until making his official public debut in February of 1995, a few months before the release of his self-titled album, Foo Fighters. They toured and went back in the studio, and in 96, Grohl was going over the drum tack for his next album and didn't care for it, so he just redid it. Fair so, enough. I mean, you honestly, think about this. If you go into a band who is run by a drummer, just like Genesis... Phil Collins was a great drummer. If you go in there, you can't expect as a drummer not to be under the microscope. Right. So can you imagine going in and being like, I am playing for Dave Grohl, who was an awesome drummer. I better be on point. Right? The original drummer, William Goldsmith, got all butthurt about it, and he quit, and got replaced by Alanis Morissette's touring drummer, Taylor Hawkins. Shortly after their sophomore effort, 1997's Color and Shape, which is a great album, was released, doing considerably better than their first one. Touring and recording, they continued to release records every couple years, keeping pretty much the same lineup since early 2000s. They've released nine studio albums that have spawned 36 singles. Dave Grohl is known in the industry as one of the hardest workers. An example of this is during a 2015 concert, he fell off the stage and broke his leg. Wow. Did he quit? No. The band played without him for a little bit, and then he went back on the stage and continued playing while medics worked on his leg. Was it just for a little bit? No. It was for the last two hours of the concert. Holy crap! Yeah. That is, that's insane. And also the word is that he's actually a really decent guy. Now, Everlong is a single off of 1997's Color in the Shape. According to Grohl, the song's about a girl that I'd fallen in love with, and it was basically about being connected to someone so much that not only do you love them physically, but spiritually, and when you sing along with them, you harmonize perfectly. Let's go ahead and take a quick listen to Everlong. When I sing along with you So he's talking about his own falling for Louise Post of the band Veruca Salt. I enjoy Foo Fighters. Veruca Salt. That is right. awesome. From uh, Willy Wonka and the mm-hmm. Chocolate Factory. Exactly. Now, I always really liked Foo Fighters stuff. The music is good, solid rock, and the videos are often great and very funny. I, this is an easy eight for me. Okay. So there isn't much of the Foo Fighters that I don't like. The song is just neat. I mean, you've pretty much said everything that, that I would want to say. And neat... I like that word. It's just a word that's underused, in my opinion. Neat. I gave this an 8 of 10 as well. I will tell you, I have seen the Foo Fighters live, and it was an amazing show. Oh, it sounds like it would be. But uh, I'll tell you about it sometime. But the way it is, we always run long on these episodes, so we'll we'll keep the personal next, stuff. Yeah, for next time. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to move on to uh, Shambhala by Three Dog Night. Excuse me? Shambhala. Okay. Yeah. So, Three Dog Night is an American rock band. They formed in 1967 with the lineup consisting of vocalist Danny Hutton, 
Corey Wells, and Chuck Negron. Haha, <laughs> I got three easy names. <laughs> this lineup was soon augmented by Jimmy Greenspoon, Joe Shamiri, Michael Alsup, and Floyd Sneed. The band registered 21 Billboard Top 40 hits between 1969 and 1975. It helped introduce mainstream audiences to the work of many songwriters, including Paul Williams. And you were talking about easy names. It is an easy name. Paul Williams, an old-fashioned love song. Hoyt Axton, Joy to the World, Never Been to Spain. Laura Nero, Eli's Coming. Harry Nielsen, One. Randy Newman, Mama Told Me Not to Come. And Leo Sayer, The Show Must Go On. The official commentary included on the CD set Celebrate, the Three Dog Night Story, 1964-1975, states that vocalist Danny Hutton's girlfriend, actress June Fairchild, suggested the name after reading a magazine article about indigenous Australians, in which it was explained that on a cold night, they would customarily sleep in a hole in the ground while embracing a dingo a native species of feral dog. On colder nights, they would sleep with two dogs, and if the nights were freezing, it was a three-dog night. Let's go to the halls of Shambhala. I think that I think I went there once. I, I think I rolled a nat twenty when I was trying to sneak. Oh, okay. In the halls of Shambhala. I, I hear you. Although the lyrics of Shambhala draw on a theme from Eastern mysticism, all music notes the very strong gospel feeling of the album Cyan is most evident on this song. This comment may be based on both the instrumentation, including the characteristic gospel keyboard organ sounds that accompany the chorus, which features the repeated unmistakable dog howls for which the group was long famous, and the bluesy vocals of Corey Wells. All Music calls this hit single one of the group's finest later period records, the song's actual lyrics are about the mystical kingdom of Shambhala, which was said to be hidden somewhere within or beyond the peaks of the Himalayas and was mentioned in various ancient texts, including the Kala Chakra Tantra and the ancient texts of Tibetan Buddhism. The lyrics refer to a situation where kindness and cooperation are universal, joy and good fortune abound, and psychological burdens are lifted. The phrases in the halls of Shambhala and on the road to Shambhala tie for number of occurrences in the lyrics. The later phrase perhaps alludes to the idea of Shambhala as not as a physical place, but as a metaphor for the spiritual path one might follow. I really like this song. Of course, it isn't Mama Told Me Not to Come or Joy to the World, but I really enjoyed it. It's smooth, and it makes... It really made me relaxed. Listening to the song really kind of relaxed me. I gave it a 7. All right. Now, you can definitely tell it's Three Dog Night by the vocals. Yeah. They have a very unique sound. And do you realize that the third song we're doing is also Three Dog Night? Oh, I didn't. I did. As you were talking, I'm like, oh, neat. That's the word of the That's the the word of the episode. There you neat. go. Neat. Now, it's a decent song. It sounds a bit folksy. It's okay. Not one of their greatest hits, in my opinion. It's not great. I give it a 5. Okay. Now, to be fair, we've run across this before where I kind of like folksy stuff and you less, so it makes sense. And we're going to probably come across a few things that I like more of and you're not a huge fan of. In fact, I'm guessing this next one is going to be one of them. I don't know. What are we talking about? Heartbeat by Jedi or Jedi, however that's supposed to be. Yeah, I don't know what the hell that's supposed to be. It's Jedi with a double D. So now, that's the kind of Jedi I could get into. It's a lady Jedi. <laughs> We are so wrong. Yeah, I know, but you guys wouldn't be listening other if you didn't like it. That's true. So, 
Jedi is a French DJ. That's pretty much all the information I could come up with, because there is almost nothing online. So we're just going to talk about the song. So this is going to be a real short one here. When I first read the song title, my first thought and fear was, God, I hope this isn't a cover of that Don Johnson clusterfuck of a song. <laughs> you forgot about that song, didn't you? I did, until just about now. And thankfully it's not. Heartbeat is a mostly instrumental song done in kind of a retro style. In fact, retro spacey is the way that I really classify it. Let's go ahead and kind of put a little heartbeat into it. Now, the song starts off with a thumping beat and some vinyl static, but then the bass synth comes in right before the claps. Gotta have the claps for a techno song. If I'm being honest, it sounds very much like backing music you'd hear like on a Super Nintendo game, like maybe F-Zero or something else that's future but retro at the same time. It does sound like it could be game music. You know what? It's not a bad thing. It's a short track that has a very, kind of a decent, but albeit very generic sound. I would have to say I'd be doing a a disservice by not wanting to hear more because i i kind of liked this one i kind of want to see what else they got to do i gave it a seven okay well i will start out by telling you you're wrong so it's edm without lyrics it's just dance music it's just horrible horrible electronic dance music pass hard pass it all just gives me a headache it, it makes my heart hurt this is a one okay i i was thinking zero it's your co-worker you got to answer to not me i was thinking a zero but I went with one, so... And this is where we determine that I may not be the folksy person and you may not be the electronic type person. That's all I got to say about that. <laughs> all right. So what do you got next? You going to redeem it? I hope so. I think so. So I got Welcome to My Nightmare by Alice Cooper. Alice Cooper, born Vincent Damon Furrier, Furner, Furnier, Furnier, Fur... Anyway... Uh, Alice Cooper, is an American singer, songwriter, and actor whose career spans over five decades. With his distinctive raspy voice and a stage show that features guillotines, electric chairs, fake blood, deadly snakes, baby dolls, and dueling swords, Cooper is considered by music journalists and peers alike to be, quote, the godfather of shock rock, unquote. He is drawn equally from horror films, vaudeville, and garage rock to pioneer a macabre and theatrical brand of rock designed to shock people. Alice Cooper was originally a band consisting of Bernier on vocals and harmonica, lead guitarist Glenn Buxton, Michael Bruce on rhythm guitar, Dennis Dunaway on bass guitar, and drummer Neil Smith. The original Alice Cooper band released its first album in 1969. The band reached their commercial peak with the 1973 album Billion Dollar Babies, one of his, one of the band's best albums of all time, quite in my opinion. Fernier adopted the band's name as his own name in the 1970s and began a solo career with the 1975 concept album Welcome to My Nightmare. In 2011, the original Alice Cooper band was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of fame. Cooper is known for his sociable and witty personality offstage, with the Rolling Stone album guide calling him the world's most beloved heavy metal entertainer. He is credited with helping to shape the sound and look of heavy metal, and who has been described as the artist who first introduced horror imagery to rock and roll, and whose stagecraft and showmanship have permanently transformed the genre. Away from music, Cooper is a film actor, a golfing celebrity, a restaurateur, and since 2004, a popular radio DJ with his classic rock show, Nights with Alice Cooper. Let's check out his uh, nightmare. Welcome to my
Welcome to My Nightmare is the title track to Alice Cooper's eighth studio album. The song itself mixes elements from disco, jazz, and hard rock and keeps a heavy yet funky beat. Cooper would later perform the song on The Muppet Show. Now, I'm a big Cooper fan, though Welcome to My Nightmare is not my favorite of his songs. It needs to be applauded for being experimental. It was the beginning of being what we all think of as Alice Cooper today. I gave it a solid six. All right, now, it's a chilly song from Alice. It's got a bit of a funk to it, so and not like a smelly funk, but, you know. Well, it good... might. You don't know. Well, then again, it was in the 70s. And as I actually mentioned, you know, it's it was in the mid-70s, which makes sense that it had to throw some funk in there. Mm-hmm. It's not a bad song. It's not one of my favorites of his. I give it a six. All right, fair enough. Hey, we agreed on that one. I thought you said a seven. No, I said a six. Oh, I guess I don't know how to write. So what do you got next? Next, we're going to do a little Deep Purple. We got Hush. Now, Deep Purple, originally formed in 1968, is one of the most well-known hard rock bands from England. Together with Zeppelin and Black Sabbath, they've been referred to as the unholy trinity of British rock and heavy metal in the early to mid-70s, and have the distinction of being listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as the Globe's loudest band in 1972 for their London Rainbow Theater concert, where they hit a staggering 117 decibels that knocked three concert goers unconscious. That's loud. That's pretty awesome, actually. Of course, since... Since then, the volumes have gone up, but for the time, it was huge. They all split up in 1976 due to many band members at the time wanting to do solo projects. I say at the time because they basically have gone through what seems to be a record number of shuffle-ups in the band between 68 and 76, each one being is different, a different mark. The one that most people know and commercially successful is Mark II, which had Ian Gillian on guitar, I'm sorry, on vocals, John Lord on keyboard, Roger Glover on bass, Ian P- Pace on drums, and Richie Blackmore on guitar. The Mark II lineup reconvened in 1984 for a short stint, yet after even more drama, they've been rocking ever since and are still considered active with a Mark VIII. Wow. And it's like Iron Man suits, God. Yeah. With Which is now... Now, Ian Gillen, Steve Morse, Roger Glover, Don Airy, and Ian Pace. They've released an album as recently as 2017. Wow, really? Yeah, I did not know that. And that's the band, the album's called Infinite. It should be noted that for, for most purists, the early 1970s Mark II was was and still will always be the defining model of Deep Purple. The voice, the sound, it's just it, what it, it's what right, it is. Right, right. In the career, the band has re- released 20 studio albums that have spawned 44 singles, which is actually a small amount for 20 albums. Yeah, that's uh, like two an album. That's... Mm-hmm. And Hush was a single off their debut album, 1968 Shades of Deep Purple, and actually was a cover. Billy Joe Royal originally released it in 1967, where it peaked at at number 52 on the Billboard Hot 100. Deep Purple's version peaked at number 4 on the same chart in in 68. Okay. Hush, while we listen to the song. Not that you were going to anyways, but you know, that's, yeah, I know, I'm number one, twice over again even. So that being said, it's a hard rock song about a guy who will drop nearly anything when he thinks his lady might be calling his name. You know, like, she's calling my name, yep, gotta go, Yeah. gotta get some. You know, the sad part is we all know people like that. I'm sure we were all people like that at one point in time. Yeah, probably. I mean, honestly, there was a, I mean, not saying that it wouldn't be now, but there was a time when someone says like, hey, you want some of this? Okay, bye. Gotta go. (laughs) You know, 
It's one of their biggest hits and a great Deep Purple song. It's one of my favorites. This would probably be, I would say, top three of their songs that I like of theirs. It's an easy seven for me. Okay. So the wolves howl and the guitars hit and you're transported to the late 60s. You just really are. The the na-na-na's hit and you know exactly what you're listening to. If you didn't know by then... You do now. You do now. So it's classic, classic, you know, classic rock. Classic, classic, classic rock. Yeah, I think that about covers it. So so times two would be squared. So it would the it would be classic cube. classic rock cubed. Oh yeah, so classic rock cubed. All right. Yeah, <clears throat> but you know it's it's just a song about like you said a guy who's like what me yeah yeah I'm coming be right there kind of thing you know now Deep Purple is one of those bands I like some of it I I really like some of it some of it is just garbage and I'm sure if there's a purist out there they're going well you're probably thinking about Mark whatever and you know and I'm just like. I don't know. I, I don't know the marks, but... Or they're thinking, shut up, it's all great. Oh, yeah, there's those people, too. But anyway, so I gave it a... What did I give it? I gave it a six. Okay. So, I really enjoy this song, though. All right, so up next, we are going to do uh, Bottom of the River by Delta Ray. So, Delta Ray is an American folk rock band formed in Durham, North Carolina. The band consists of three siblings, Ian Holages, Eric Holages, and Brittany Holages as well as Elizabeth Hopkins, Mike McKee, and Grant Emerson. They began as a four-piece ensemble and added McKee and Emerson to the dynamic in 2010. Their name hails from a fictional story the Holly Jesus' mother intended to write about a southern girl named Delta Ray, who summons the Greek gods to Earth. So, let's search the bottom of the river. So Bottom of the River has always had mysterious origins, singer Eric Hologies tells Spinner. The chorus of the song came to me in a dream, which was a rare and strange experience. I don't recall the dream, but I do remember rushing to my phone in a haze at 4 a.m. to record it, and in the morning, I played it for my brother, Ian, who wrote the verses in a matter of hours. It's really uncommon for a song to come that quickly when we were writing. It felt as if it wanted to be written. When making the video, we felt strongly about maintaining the creepiness and mystery of the song. However, it was never important to do a direct depiction of the story in the song. After eight frustrating months of fruitless ideating, Ian suggested telling the story of witch, of a witch trial, which immediately resonated. Our director, Lawrence Chen, had a great eye for the works on screen, and he helped pull together local dancers and a ship in 40 Beijing opera masks from China to make it as compelling a performance as we could. We shot almost the entire video in one night with a tiny budget collected from shows we had played over that year and a cast crew of 60-plus friends and local talent. It was a huge collaboration effort, and we couldn't have done it without the amazing work and effort of so many people. We still can't believe we pulled it off. So unique sound and i'm really drawn to this song i had never heard it before uh doing jeremy's list but damn i definitely need to listen to more of this delta ray stuff this is my kind of music i gave it an upper eight maybe a lower nine but we're gonna call it an eight okay the plus is that she's got good pipes the minus is everything else this belongs at the bottom of the river i gave it a two what i did not care for this i it was a very horribly bored meh for me okay I disagree with you once again, but that's the way this goes. All right, so now we're going to go with a little... Actually, ra- this this list is a good point of 
where we're on the same road, but we go to different houses. Mm -hmm. It is, really. So we got Red Right Hand by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. All right. Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds is an Australian rock band formed in 1983 by Shock, Nick Cave, Mick Harvey, and, oh my God, Blixa Bargeld. So Cave and Harvey were in a post-punk band called The Birthday Party. When the band broke up, they found they still liked working together and formed a new band with Nick Cave being the leader of the pack. They first released they released their first studio album, 1984's From Her to Eternity, to a little acclaim. It peaked at number 40 on the UK charts. After a few member shakeups, they moved around the world to locales such as Germany, New York City, and Sao Paulo, Brazil, and tried new styles of music for the next few releases. Their sixth release, 1990's The Good Son, is where they really broke out, making the charts in Australia, New Zealand, Norway, the UK, and the Netherlands. A few more band shakeups and the album released, and album releases, I should say, and they finally charted in the US with 1997's The Boatman's Call. Cave took a hiatus to get his shit and love life together, and they started recording again, coming back in 2001 with No More Shall We Part. Several Bad Seeds worked on a side project with Cave named Grinderman in 2006, that played a more heavy rock sound than the original band. Between Grinderman and Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, they continue to tour throughout the world and are still technically listed as active today. As of this writing, Cave says he's already in process of writing an untitled Bad Seeds album, which is supposed to end a trilogy which started with 2013's Push the Sky Away. Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds have released 16 studio albums that have spawned 31 albums. Red Right Hand is a single off of 1994's Let Love In album. Before we go too much further, let's go ahead and take a listen to the Red Right Hand. No homing wise, you man, you know you're never coming back. Past the square, past the bridge, past the mills, past the stacks. On a gathering storm comes a tall, handsome man in a dusty black coat with a red right hand. So the song itself comes from a line from a John Milton's poem, Paradise Lost. What if the breath that kindled those grim fires awakened should blow them into sevenfold rage and plunge us in the flames or from above should intermittent vengeance arm again his red right hand to plague us? And it's considered one of Cave's signature songs. Now, there's a ton of good, if not great, and possibly even legendary artists that come from one of, or they come from Down Under, I mean, in excess. Kylie Minogue, Keith Urban, Wolfmother, and of course ACDC. Do these guys belong on the list? Well, they are from Australia, but they're not quite legendary. Or, if it's me, great. Um, This is definitely a song I didn't know the title, but I did recognize it once I heard the chorus. It comes off a 1994 album that sounds like they were shooting for a spaghetti western meets 70s rock. That is a good way to put that. You know, I know, right? Because it's it's just those two things put together that way. I would have never put those those two ideas together, but when you said it, I'm like, that's completely it. This sounds like something that Tarantino would put in a movie. Yes, and ironically enough, it was in the Dumb and Dumber soundtrack in the movie, but not on the soundtrack. And perhaps they knew something back then by leaving it off and putting other songs on. The song is just okay, but I don't know if I'd even want to give them another chance. Maybe listeners can change my mind, but I give it a four. Okay. So, I never understood the point of this song. And even by you telling me that it's based on uh, the Milton poem, you know, Paradise Lost. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so it, I will say for for the uh, the good part of this is it does have a fun little hook whenever he sings the chorus about the red right hand. That is a nice little hook. I mean, mm-hmm. I'll give him that. I don't really have anything to add to this to, to what you said already. I gave it a three. Okay. And actually, earlier in the say, you mentioned that there was going to be a song that had a low rating on it. That is the one that I marked. 
Oh, this one? Yeah. So It does have a low rating, but not the lowest one. Obviously, we already saw that on Heartbeat. But Well, the lowest of my songs, though. No, Heartbeat. Oh, one, okay. All right. Which we already did, so... Okay. So up next, I have I Stay Away by Alice in Chains. So Alice in Chains is a rock band formed in Seattle, Washington in 1987 by guitarist, vocalist Jerry Cantrell and drummer Sean Kinney, who then recruited bassist Mike Starr and lead vocalist Lane Staley. Mike Starr was replaced in 1993 by Mike Inez. The band took its name from Staley's previous group, the glam metal band Alice in Chains, just the letter N. You know, like the Guns N' Roses thing? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Although widely associated with grunge music, the band's sound incorporates heavy metal elements. Since its formation, Alice in Chains has released five studio albums. The band is known for its distinctive vocal style, which often included the harmonized vocals between Staley and Cantrell. Cantrell started to sing lead on the 1992 acoustic EP, EP Sap, and his role continued to grow in the following albums, making Alice in Chains a two-vocal band. Alice in Chains rose to international fame as part of the grunge movement in the early 1990s, along with other Seattle bands such as Nirvana, Pearl Jam, and Soundgarden. Their second acoustic uh, EP, Jar of Flies, debuted at number one on the Billboard 200 chart in 1994, becoming the first ever EP and first Alice in Chains release to top the charts, and it has been certified triple platinum by the RIAA. Although never officially disbanding, Alice in Chains was plagued by extended inactivity from 1996 onwards due to Staley's substance abuse, which resulted in his death in 2002. The band reunited in 2005 for a live benefit show, performing with a number of guest vocalists. They toured in 2006 with William Duvall, taking over as lead vocalist full-time. The new lineup released the band's fourth studio album, Black Gives Way to Blue, in 2009. Their fifth studio album, The Devil Put Dinosaurs Here... It was released in 2013. That's just awesome. The band toured extensively and released several videos in support of these albums. Alice in Chains is currently working on their sixth studio album, tentatively set for a release in early 2018. Let's see why we stay away. So I Stay Away is a song from Alice in Chains' 1994 Jar of Flies and the second single from the album. The song marked the first time the band wrote with bassist Mike Inez. The song reached number 10 on Billboard's mainstream rock tracks and stayed in the chart for 26 weeks. That's a half a year. Nice. I Stay Away was nominated for the Grammy Award for Best Hard Rock Performance in 1995. The song was included on the compilation albums Nothing Safe, Best of the Box, 1999, Music Bank, 1999, Greatest Hits 2001, and The Essential Alice in Change 2006. That seems like an awful lot of compilation albums for a short amount of time. I would agree. This song is no rooster, and I can't say that I Stay Away is a good song for me. It fits the grunge sound, and though everyone knows I spent about 38 seconds in the grunge scene, this one just doesn't do it for me. I gave it a four. Okay. Now... It's an atypical Alice in Chains song because it's a bit more light and almost symphonic, if you really listen to it. Yeah. As opposed to, like, grungy guitar. I like Alice in Chains. It's, I didn't care for them in the, initially because, it, I mean, I tried not to stay away from mainstream stuff. But now going back, I'm like, I kind of missed out. However, I don't think I really missed on this one. Um, never really heard it before. Won't be at the top of my list of their best. It's still not bad. I gave it a six. Okay. All right. What do you got next? 
Next, we have I Will Wait by Mumford & Sons. Now, Mumford & Sons is a British folksy rock band formed in 2007 of Marcus Mumford, Ben Lovett, Winston Marshall, and Ted Dwayne. They're sons of their parents, I guess. So, there you go. Otherwise, it's a false advertising. Anyways, the name was supposed to bring out a sense of old-timey business names where they often did, like, X and Sons or whatever. Right, right. Finger quotes and... You, just so you can pretend to see this, I'm shrugging. Like, meh, so what? <laughs> they got together and played local um, to begin with, and then in 2008 finished a tour of the UK and played Glastonbury Festival, which I guess would be impressive if I knew or gave a shit what that was about. They released a couple EPs before putting out their first studio album in 2009, Sigh No More, that did very well in the charts, peaked at number two on the US Billboard 200 and the UK Albums Chart. It also peaked at number one on the Australian Albums Chart, Irish Albums Chart, New Zealand Albums, and U.S. Folk Albums, among others. Riding the popularity wave, their first U.S. network TV performance was on Letterman in 2010, where they were Grammy-nominated, which gave them more, TV, more exposure. They've continued to record and tour with the original four guys, as well as additional studio and live musicians, and are considered active today. They've released three studio albums, all of which have gone at least gold in the U.S. to this date. The albums have spawned 16 singles, and the group is currently working on a new studio album to drop sometime in 2018. Now, I Will Wait is a single off of 2012's Babel, and is supposedly inspired by the challenges of maintaining a relationship while touring on the road, and the life just gets in the way to disrupt things. Let's go ahead and not wait and listen to it now. Boy, are you funny. Yeah, I do what I can. As, as you can tell, I really care about this one. So, much like the rest of their stuff, it's a song adorned with horns, banjos, stomping, and the fiddle. I'm not a big Mumford fan, and this song really does not change my mind or make me want to go out and listen to more. Granted, they've got a great harmony, but this one almost sounded a bit whiny to me. The song's just not my style. Bluegrass seems to be this generation's fad, kind of like line dancing was and the swing revival of the 90s was. It's going to go away. I don't foresee this sticking around. It's it's a fad that everybody seems to like now, except for Brian. I mean, Brian will love this till the day he dies, I'm sure. But I care. I didn't really care so much. I gave it a five. Okay. So Mel heard the music start, and she said, I know this song. I said, is it good? She said, yeah, I like it. Now, of course, I've heard this song before. But it never hurts to get a second opinion, does it? So this proto-bluegrass band and song are pretty good. I say proto-bluegrass because they're not really bluegrass. They're... They're this this time's bluegrass. You know, this this is the 2010's bluegrass. It's not bluegrass. It's not classic. It's not bluegrass in the way I think of bluegrass. Um, I like the way that they harmonize and how they make this song work. I think if this song was done in any other genre, it wouldn't work. I gave it a 7. All right, so what do you got next then? Up next, I have Lonely Boy by the Black Keys. The Black Keys are an American rock band formed in Akron, Ohio in 2001. The group consists of Dan Auerbach and Patrick Carney. The duo began as an independent act, recording music in basements and self-producing their records before they eventually emerged as one of the most popular garage rock artists during a second wave of the genre's revival in the 2010s. The band's raw blues rock sound draws heavily from Auerbach's blues influence, including Junior Kimborough, Howlin' Wolf, and Robert Johnson. Friends since childhood, Auerbach and Carney founded the group after dropping out of college. 
Over the next decade, the Black Keys built an underground fan base through extensive touring of small clubs, frequent album releases, and music festival appearances, and substantial licensings of their songs. After self-producing and recording their first four records in makeshift studios, the duo completed Attack and Release in 2008 in a professional studio and hired producer Danger Mouse. Subsequently, became a frequent collaborator with the band. The group's commercial breakthrough came in 2010 with Brothers. Their 2011 follow-up, El Camino, received strong reviews and peaked at number two on the Billboard 200 chart, leading to the first arena concert tour of the band's career. The El Camino Tour. The album and its hit single, Lonely Boy, won three Grammy Awards. Let's see if we can help the Lonely Boy. Lonely Boy is a song by American rock band The Black Keys. It is the opening track from the 2011 studio El Camino and was released as the record's lead single. Lonely Boy became one of the group's most successful singles. At the 55th Annual Grammy Awards, the song won awards for Best Rock Performance and Best Rock Song, while also receiving a nomination for the Record of the Year. Never heard this before. It's not really my thing. I don't like that reverby sound of the vocals, and it just isn't my type of music. Obviously, they are very talented musicians, but... I'm just not feeling it. I gave it a four. I just thought that they're trying too hard to remain indie. I mean, they've obviously got their sound polished, but I think they're trying to sound indie, and that I don't care for. It just seems fake to me. The song honestly had me bored until the chorus. And once the chorus happened, I'm like, okay, this is cool. And then it's like, oh, it's crap. It's back to the rest of the garbage. (laughs) That wasn't enough to save it, so I, too, gave it a four. Okay, fair enough. What do you got? All right, so we've got Mr. Blue Sky by Electric Light Orchestra, which I'm going to consider to call ELO because saying that whole name is a mouthful. So ELO are a Brit rock band that formed in 1970 of Jeff Lynn, Roy Wood, and Bev Bevan. Yes, his name was Beverly. That sucks, dude. <laughs> um, Lynn and Wood were in other bands before they broke away to work on the project that became ELO. They formed the band because they wanted to make modern rock and pop music but have classical overtones. They released their first album, The Electric Light Orchestra, in 1971 in the UK. It was different in the US being released in 1972 under the name No Answer. So the story goes that a United Artists Records exec had asked what the band's album name, and the person who tried contacting ELO wrote down No Answer because in his notes, he wasn't able to reach the representative. (laughs) That's kind of funny, actually. The exec misunderstood the note, and there you have it. Shortly after the band had its first shakeup, Wood left to form Wizard with two Zs, because apparently that was the way to do it. They continued touring and recording, releasing more rock and concept albums. What's more metal than Zs, though? They need like three Zs. No, no, actually two is perfect, because if it were three, then it'd be like sleeping. Right. Yeah, I think they did it right. Yeah. Reaching peak popularity by the end of 1979, they changed their sound again, going back to their progressive rock roots and replacing strings with synthesizers. They did a few live performances before disbanding in 1986. Many of the members did side projects. Bevan, as a co-owner of the ELO name, toured as ELO Part 2 with Lynn's Blessing before retiring the lineup in 2000. Lynn went on to become part of the supergroup, the Traveling Wilburys. In 2000, a retrospective box set was released, and Lynn reformed the band for a year, mainly stick around to remix and remaster old material, um, but not tour. It wasn't until 2012 when they truly came back together as Jeff Lynne's ELO. They continued to play together and hit the studio, releasing their most recent album, 2015's Alone in the Universe, 
and played for the Grammy Awards for the first time that year. Then in 2017, they did their Alone in the Universe tour and played the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame during the annual induction ceremony. ELO has released 13 studio albums that have spawned 50 singles and are still active today. Mr. Blue Sky is a single off of 1977's Out of the Blue. Let's go ahead and just kind of take a gander at Mr. Blue Sky. Lynn tends to put blue in a lot of his songs, and this one is actually weather-based. Apparently, it was inspired by when he locked himself away at a Swiss chalet, and the weather was just shitty for two weeks. It was misty and raining and just garbage. The sun came out, and he was like, wow, look at those beautiful Alps, his words. He said he then went and wrote 13, this song and 13 others in the next two weeks. Wow. So the weather got nice, and he went into beast mode. I guess. The song almost has a bit of a Beatles feel to it, with updated, updated instruments, actually. It's not bad. It's not my favorite ELO song, but I liked it. It's a six for me. Okay. So, Mr. Blue Sky, this song from ELO, and of course, it's on the soundtrack for Guardians of the Galaxy. That's right, it is. Yeah. I think it's a fun little song that has an upbeat and exciting musical line. Now, I'm a little gushy here, and I understand, but it's always fun to find music that makes you smile, and mm-hmm. this song, for whatever reason, makes Made me smile. smile. Hmm. I gave it an eight. Oh, wow. So, what would your last song be? I am going to go out on a dud. I hate to say it, but I am. So, Emergency by Pigboard Nerds. Pigboard Nerds is a Danish-Norwegian electronic music group consisting of Norwegian DJ Alexander Odin and Danish DJ Michael Parsberg. The name Pigboard Nerds is an anagram of the duo's surnames, Odin and Parsberg. Odin and Parsberg first met in 2005 and formed the group in 2011. Previously, the records were released under separate projects and both have been producing since the 1990s. On October 21, 2015, the duo released Pink Cloud EP to fund breast cancer research, which went up to number two on the iTunes dance albums and into the top ten on Billboard dance albums. So that's that, that's that's the bonus thing. They did this thing for breast cancer. That was really kind of cool. Mm-hmm. In 2017, the duo released Nerds by Nature EP. I know, it makes me sad. With a remix EP being released later that year. The EP reached number 12 on the top dance electronic albums billboard charts and received a generally positive review. Let's see if we can stop this emergency. We still have it. I couldn't find anything out there on what the song is about. But let's be honest. It's EDM, and it's and I'm not a huge fan. I, I did find the lyrics to be pretty straightforward, though. Emergency. Let me be absolutely clear. This is mine, but I'll let you in. Gather around. Take a part of it. Of me. Of me. A wasted life seems to mean the most, but these seconds are valuable. Breathe in charge or let it go and breathe. Emergency. Help. Emergency. Um, okay. So it's obviously not complex. No, not at all. That's it. I guess whatever makes you happy, I'm not a fan, I gave it a two. 
All right. Now, before listening to this, my first thought was I kind of like the name of the band, so I hope the song is good. I can't say I was disappointed. It's a decent electronica song that has a very distinct retro style to it. Could I listen to a whole album? Probably not unless they changed up their style because of this shit would get old. But it got they, old in the three minutes or whatever, <laughs> however long this was. But if they would change it, I think it's okay, and I actually wouldn't mind giving a listen to some of the other stuff. I gave it a seven. Again, this is one of those places where we do not converge. <laughs> so we're going to finish up with something that actually is another duplicate, and that was The Wreck of Edmund Fitzgerald by Gordon Lightfoot. When did we do that? Canadians. Oh, okay. Gordon Meredith Lightfoot Jr. Meredith. Yeah, I know, right? is a Canadian singer-songwriter born in 1938 in Ontario, Canada. Lightfoot, who is often referred to as Canada's greatest songwriter, started early on. His mom saw his talent at a young age and educated him, molding him to a child performer. His first performance was Tura Lura Lural, an Irish lullaby over the school's PA system, for the parents' day when he was in fourth grade. He continued performing through high school and taught himself to play folk guitar. He traveled back and forth between the U.S. and Canada, studying and working on jingles. In early 1964, he started to get a rep as a songwriter, having such artists as Peter, Paul, and Mary and Marty Robbins sing his songs. Finally, in 1966, he released his debut album, Lightfoot, with an exclamation point, to some acclaim. At the time, it didn't do much, but now it has famous songs on it. With that album, he became one of the first Canadian artists to achieve homegrown stardom without having moved to the USA to develop it. He continued to write and release, but didn't break into the U.S. charts until his fifth album, Sit Down, Young Stranger. His songs ranged all over the place, but stuck with its folksy roots. In 1972, he had a bout with Bell's Palsy, which left half, which left part of his face paralyzed for a while. He still cranked out hits, but in 2003, he had to cancel his performance and travel due to his ruptured abdominal aneurysm, which is a weakened and bulging area in the lower part of the aorta. Just... That does not sound like fun. No, it doesn't. After multiple surgeries, he returned to performing and recording. At last, his last studio album was 2004's Harmony, and per his website, he has a, he had a 2017 tour in the U.S. and Canada. Did not know that. Gordon, Gordon Lightfoot has released 19 studio albums that have spawned 46 singles. The Wreck of Edmund Fitzgerald was a single released on 1976 Summertime Dream, which took an inspiration from a Newsweek article that was released two weeks after the tragedy. Let's go ahead and take a quick listen to... The Wreck of Edmund Fitzgerald. The legend lives on from the Chippewa down of the big lake they call Gitchagumi. Superior, they said, never gives up the dead when the gales of November come early. Now, now this, I got I got to tell you I am going to be interested to see what part of this song you chose you you chose because as I was listening to it I'm like there's you could choose just about anywhere right and I think I probably used the same piece that I did when we had when we did the Canadian piece okay because it's a long enough song that I can I don't have to worry about like the fair trade crap right but I'll have to check because I'm not sure I don't think I'm not sure if I did the editing on this one yet oh, okay so now. It's a chilling tale about the time leading up to and the sinking of an ore freighter, the SS Edmund Fitzgerald. He recounts the events with a little bit of artistic license of the Big Fitz and her crew, along with some local history thrown in. She sank in the frigid waters of Lake Superior on November 10, 1975, primarily due to high waves driven by hurricane-force winds and gusts. 
No lives were spared. I gotta say, this is a fitting tribute to those who gave their lives in the maritime tragedy. And honestly, most people who are from the upper Midwest, especially Wisconsin and Michigan, really appreciate this song. I remember hearing this as a kid. I really enjoy this song to this day. I mean, I can. this is one I will not turn off. It's kind of a bummer of a song to a degree, mm-hmm. but it's still a good song to listen to. It's an easy seven for me. Okay. So, I love this song. I really do. It's a great, honest, local song about a tragedy that happened on Lake Superior. Though, in the song, it is known by... He uses its Native American name, which is Gitche This, to me, is close... Close to that unicorn song. I gave it a nine. Really? Yeah. Wow. All right. So that wraps us up. So why don't you go ahead and grab that uh, trivia while trivia you're and, and watch me go under the 500? Perhaps. Well, we'll see. So once again, the question was, what 1992 song won MTV Video Music Awards for Video of the Year, Best Group Video, Best Metal Slash Hard Rock Video, and Best Director in 1993? I have a few ideas. I, I think I'm going to go with... Well, I'm going to go with the band Guns N' Roses. Okay. And I'm going to go with... I'm going to go with Estranged. Okay. So now I already have your answer, and I'm going to tell you it's not right. I kind of figured. But I'm going to go ahead and remind you. I do a th- I do it based on our The other episode. thing running through my head was Nirvana, but they weren't really heavy metal. No. Again, I, it's on to... That's part of your friend. I will give you the band. Pearl Jam. It's got to be Jeremy, then. Who is our guest personalist? Jeremy. Exactly. That's why I did this one, hoping that you wouldn't overthink it. I so. always overthink these. You know that. <laughs> All right, so you are now 15 and 16, so you did drop below. Yeah. Okay, listen up, everybody. Turn up your volumes. Announcement. All right, so the songs where we varied vastly were the two EDM songs. Okay. We had a difference of six on Heartbeat and a difference of five on Emergency. Okay. Where we didn't differ at all was was Foo Fighters Everlong, we both gave it an 8, and Black Keys Lonely Boy, which we both gave a 4. So everything else was in between those two extremes. So, if you want to uh, let us know what you think of this episode or any other episode we do, you can do that easily enough. There are several ways for you to get a hold of us. First of all, through email. You can drop us an email at musicchallengepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can also reach us at eclecticmediaproject at gmail.com. If that's not your thing, if you're more into the social media kind of thing, you can find us on Facebook at POI Network or at Musically Challenged Podcast. And finally, we're on the Twitter. If you want to go ahead and send us some feedback, plus or minus, if you want to send us a playlist, 14 songs, 14 artists, have a theme, great. Don't have a theme, just random shit. That's cool, too. Um, Just make sure that you have access to the music, so in case we need it, we can contact you for it. And that is going to be at MC Podcast 17, or again, at MC Podcast 17. Hit us up, and we'll be happy to talk to you. Yeah, and with that, thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.